0: Do you think I'm sorry, I'm just doing a interview um, on the uh, old Skype. Any chance you could not move the papers?
1: Optimal,
0: At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question?
1: Now a time. What if I did the island? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Me, Tim, Paris, oh. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked As always, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you can find all of the links and resources from this episode, as well as every other episode, by going to 4hourworkweek.com forward slash podcast, spell it all out, or you can go to 4hourworkweek.com and just click on podcast. Feedback, if you have feedback, I would love your thoughts, anything at all, who you'd like to see on this show. Ping me on Twitter, at T Ferris, that's twitter.com forward slash T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Tim Ferriss with two R's and two S's. This episode is a conversation between yours truly, Tim Ferriss, and Ed Cook. Ed Cook is a grandmaster of memory based in... Britain, Great Britain, a good friend. He's made a number of appearances in the four hour chef. He helped improve my ability to memorize anything and everything. He's also very well known for coaching a writer named Joshua Foer from nothing, i.e. ground zero to becoming U.S. national memory champion in, I believe, a year or so of time. Uh, a really astonishing feat. And we'll get into what Grand Master of Memory means. This is a two part Episode. So you have two separate parts. They are very, very dense. They are hilarious. If you liked the Kevin Kelly episodes, the Josh Waitskin episodes, or any episodes that are similar to those, very in depth, wide ranging, you are going to love this episode. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Ed Cook. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Ferriss and welcome to a special episode of the Tim Ferriss Show. I have my dear friend Ed Cook on the line. I grabbed him last minute for reasons I shall explain. And he is a grandmaster of memory among many, many other things. At the at the ripe old age of twenty-three is when he turned that corner. But Ed, where are you at the moment and and what are you up to?
0: So I am currently sitting in the uh in the office. Um where I work, which is a converted Methodist chapel in Bethnal Green, London, um, and it's Friday night at ten fifteen p.m. here, <laughs> yeah, so like, well, people with adequate social lives uh, are currently uh, you know, running around town and falling in love. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm here, and I'm chatting with you, Tim, and I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> and
1: I wanted to actually share with people what we just talked about doing an audio check before we began recording, where you gave the best answer I've ever heard to a very mundane question, which is, what did you ha- Tell me what you had for breakfast or what did you have for breakfast? And <laughs> you feel free to improvise, but what was your answer roughly?
0: Well, it was a sound check. So I was allowing myself a certain embellishment, but yeah, I was just relating how I had a couple of, um, 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 a few sausages, um, some seven, salmon, seven kippers, um, kippers. I think they were, they were, they were peat smoked kippers. Uh, four boiled eggs and two poached eggs, that kind of thing. Yeah, there's <laughs> a, there, I I can't. I actually don't know the English king, but um, but I had a friend who um, uh, it's an amazing friend. It's still a friend who uh, occasionally at breakfast used to sort of chuckle out Canterbury, and and I'd be like, you know, what well, well, what are you talking about? And he'd be like, oh, I'm just thinking about what you know. Henry the sixth had for breakfast every
1: day. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I should, give, uh, no, I should give some background for folks who may not realize that uh, you and I first connected several years ago, and you were tremendously helpful with the Four Hour Chef, since that was a a book about accelerated learning disguised as a cookbook, which surprise, surprise, ended up being very, very confusing to almost everybody in the universe who came across it. But <laughs> the there were aspects of it, including uh, chapters focused on mnemonic devices and uh, other types of, of memory techniques where you were incredibly helpful. So first of all, thank you very much for that. Um, oh, my pleasure. And I was having trouble piecing together how we first came in contact. How did we first... Meet. And I should also, just as context for folks, point out that Ed is in the UK, I am drinking highly caffeinated tea, he is drinking wine, and this is intended to be like a pub conversation. So, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, yeah, so please filter any interpretation of any remarks <laughs> in the context of a, a, of a ripe old English pub. Yeah. Uh, well, we came into contact through um, my dear friend Greg, uh, with whom I, I co-founded the company. Um, and um, Greg was then a PhD student at Princeton, and I think you came to do a couple of talks. He got chatting with you,
1: and it was through that that we met. That's right. And so uh, for those who are not familiar, uh, Ed is co-founder, and the office that he referred to is related to uh, his company Memrise, Memrise Memrise.com, which we'll come back to. And uh the the concept of being a grandmaster of memory it's not really a concept the qualification what is entailed in in becoming a grandmaster of memory so um yeah so so i think for, I'll, I'll explain
0: that first and then we can discuss a little bit um just how stupid a term it is and, <laughs> and what a marvelous device for kind of you know, uh, either ending a conversation or beginning one at a bus stop. But yeah, so um, Grandmaster of Memory—it's it, a kind of title given out by the uh, the World Memory Sports Foundation, and and basically you have to be able to remember um, a one thousand-digit number in an hour, a pack of cards in under a couple of minutes, and then ten packs of shuffled cards in an hour. So it's um, so it's it's three parts of the World Memory Championships which determine uh, whether you can
1: get this title.
0: And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's a great title.
1: I mean, I, I can't really, other than, it's a very know, compelling it, title,
0: you know, just like, you know, the number of times, you know, I've been in the kind of losing situation in nightclub, you know, outdanced, um, you know, I, you know, I'm not a symmetrical person, Tim um and uh, you know sometimes my visual allure kind of understates the the value of conversation with me anyhow uh so this is sort of like it's just, you know just i like, said so what's your problem it's like sorry i'm grandmaster of memory it's like okay well, you know let me buy you some champagne and then we can talk further about this important qualification uh but yeah it's it's, it's a very silly of concept but um but you know the the, the kind of the, the cultural context, if you want, from which it emerges, namely people doing competitive memory competitions. I think is awesome and fascinating because um, uh, because um, in 1990 the world record for memorising a shuffle deck of cards was 149 seconds, mm-hmm. which you know if you could memorise a pack of cards in under three minutes and show that to somebody they'd be fairly astounded and would think you were cheating. And, you know, it, it's not obvious to anybody that the human mind would be capable of that. Um, and I remember I was very proud, um, you know, 10 years ago when I uh, first broke a minute. I, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is extraordinary. Anyway, the world record now is 21 seconds. Wow. For the memorization of a shuffle deck of 52 cards. And you sort of think, well, obviously, you know, people presumably um, haven't got like uh, four times faster brains than they did um, um, only 24 years ago, but in, the reason for it is is that there's been this competitive culture in which um, there's an objective measure of mnemonic speed, if you like. And over the last 10, over the last 20 years, people have, on each year, done their best to outgun their rivals in the memory scene, and then very openly and freely shared the techniques and hacks they've used to be able to optimize these you know, fairly arbitrary but nonetheless kind of interesting processes of you know, memorization. And, and the result has been an absolutely continuous linear increase in the amount of stuff people can remember across a very wide range of disciplines in a sp- particular amount of time. So this is true of like, names and faces, random strings of words, crazy like, abstractly generated images, all the stuff people have been able to think up to test people's memories with. As a result of this community of competition and sharing, um, you know, people have got almost 10 times faster now in the course of 24 years at memorizing things when it was already very
1: impressive in the first place. So I think that's why it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Is that a function of prize money, prestige, social media? I'm very curious about the dynamic that has produced that progress because if you look at, mixed martial arts, for instance, UFC, Mm -hmm. and you look at the first 10 UFCs, compare that to, compare the competitors to the competitors, say, uh, 30 UFCs later, compare those Mm -hmm. competitors with those of today, as the prize money has increased, among other things, I think it's primarily the prize money, uh, you see a very quick evolution in terms of whether it's selection bias or just a larger pool of competitors that has gone from, say, top 20% of athletes in the United States to top 10 to top two, and you're just looking mm-hmm. at, at mutants in many cases now. Uh, not yeah. to, not to detract from their technique, not to, <laughs>
0: not to diminish their, fine manners and general
1: affable. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, right. Not to, not to diminish their, their gentlemanly demeanor, uh, and technique and training. But is, what is, what, is, what are the contributing factors to the, well, the, 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 increases in, uh, in speed?
0: And well, capability. I mean, all the options. Well, of the options you offered up there, um, you can, you can choose
1: other. You can choose other ones.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly not social media. The total Twitter followers of uh, competitors in the World Memory Championships is, uh, yeah, twenty twenty-five or something. <laughs> but um, yeah, the um, and it's not money. There's no there's no real money on it. I, I think it's um, you know I, I would I would suppose that you know perhaps in a hundred years time, if people did still care the current state of memory sports would be considered still extraordinarily immature. Um, and so I think we're probably what, what's the kind of, it's like cricket in the 19th century in England where people were kind of working out the basics of technique. Um, um, in that case, historically, I believe it was the invention of the steam train, which allowed cricket to get good because uh, teams from further apart in the country could visit each other um, the uh, uh, information and press was delivered, you know, uh, quicker. And so there was a sort of general um, increase in the talent pool who were competing with each other. And uh, and it was just possible to even travel and sort of compete. And it's the same thing there. So, like, people from all over the world can do it. You know, it's easy to hop on a plane. So that that's a contributing factor. Um, but I think fundamentally the motivation is um, that it's just so cool winning or doing well in the world memory championships that it's purely, uh, it's purely a kind of um, slightly comic form of status I think which drives it mm-hmm. as well as the fact that of course it's, it's phenomenally interesting to um, take something which every single person there would never imagine they were capable of doing and push it and push it and push it to, to see how well it can be done um, and it probably helps
1: that it's quite precisely quantifiable you know, right. like the hundred meters or whatever else. And I wanted to, I wanted to grab uh, something you mentioned and come back to it, which is what what the average person is capable of doing, or what most people are capable of doing. And uh, perhaps you could recount for folks the outcome of one of the experiments that that you and I did, uh, also involving your team, which was related to the four hour Chef. So we wanted to incentivize people to try to memorize a shuffle deck of cards. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that and the outcome because a lot of people listening will probably assume like a thousand digits, I could never even remember a phone number. I couldn't remember 20 numbers. And they underestimate what they're capable of doing. So I would love if you could just perhaps recount the results of the experiment that we did related to the book launch.
0: Yes, yeah, so that was that was a fun um fun thing we did. So yeah, we we on memorise we um we launched a competition uh with you, Tim. Uh yeah, at the same time as the launch of the book. Um and you know it was a ten thousand dollar prize. Um I believe munificently uh, supplied by U Yep, that's right. Uh, I I, uh, I spent it on uh, yeah, anyway. So um <laughs> so, anyhow, so yeah so we did this thing, um, and we had this um this great engineer in the office called Tank who built this amazing system, which was basically um, a, a standard memorized course where you would um, learn to associate with each card in the deck um, a a person, and i 'd actually propose like. A group of 52 people, but there are ways of, of changing them to, to be people uh, that you, you wanted to have in your, in your set of images. Uh, and the basic technique underlying this is that, um, you know, cards are boring and unmemorable. Sequences are boring and unmemorable. How do you remember them? Well, you turn the cards into images which are more memorable. Uh, and so, for instance, Tim, you are slightly more memorable than the three of hearts, say. Um, because you have characteristics, you have a personality, I can imagine you in detail, I can imagine you interacting in situations, so you're inherently more interesting to my brain than a mere card or figure or um, or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so,
1: I mean, this is kind of an incredibly incoherent explanation, but I'll, I'll keep going. So, um, I think it's, I think so, you're doing. So, I think you're doing great. The assumption that I have personality is a bit of a stretch, but besides that, you're doing fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that it was an adequate or admirable one. I just <laughs> said there was one. Um, anyway, so um, so you know the, the basics of, of memory techniques is that our minds love certain kinds of things. So we're very very good at remembering spaces. We're very very good at remembering. Um, uh, things which which attract our interest, and so you know a, a rule of thumb I like to use is that um, anything which should grab your attention if you're wandering down the street is the kind of thing which will grab your attention in your memory, so you know will something gray and um, written in legal language grab your attention if you 're uh, walking down the street? no, but will a kind of a small elephant being attacked by lemurs attract your attention? Yes, you know will a, a spectacular lissom naked woman attract your attention, perhaps. Will um, a um, bollard do so? Probably not. And so it's the same thing when we kind of perceive within ourselves, which is to say when we remember the the vivid, interesting, emotion-grabbing things. Uh, Again, Tim, I'd like to clarify that you don't evoke vivid emotions, particularly. I mean, mean, I'm just taking you as an example. (laughs) uh, But anyway, these things things grab our attention. So, The art of memory is basically transforming information which is not interesting into forms of information which are interesting. And for a pack of cards... The technique which I um, I use myself um, and which is very popular in the memory community is to take each card and then wrote associate a person with it. And, and, you know, if you go with personal association, you can do this very quickly. It takes like an afternoon for a normal person to, to associate with 52 cards, 52 people. And then having got that code, which is a bit like a language, really. You, know, you think of it as a language. So, you know, if I say hola to you, you'll say, oh, hi, Ed. And you have just learned an arbitrary association between some letters, hola. And um, a meaning, you know, high there, sort of thing, uh, and it's just like that with the cards. It's like it's like a very very small language, fifty two words, and so when you're going through the cards, you um, you imagine the the people you've associated with the cards instead of the cards, and already it's massively more interesting. And the second thing you do to tackle the sequence, which is difficult to remember because it's just a bland sequence, is that you string these. People who are standing in for cards into an amusing story. So you uh, you might be getting at your doorstep, and you know there's Tim Ferriss, and he's he's desperately uh, you know trying to impress uh, the Queen. She's not impressed, and then slightly down the road, we've got like the Pope, and he's chatting with Ed Stodden, and and you know these these people are standing in for cards, and because um, Tim's trying to impress the Queen, it's kind of funny. You know, kind of there's a kind of colonial perverse humor vibe, <laughs> um, or whatever, and it's just more interesting than three of hearts, seven of spades, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, so that's the basic Teddy. So going back to your original question, we we put together a course on memos, which helped people make these associations, and so that you know people would play on that for an hour, and they build up this vocabulary of ways of thinking about cards, so they're just more interesting, more vivid, uh, that so they attract more emotion, and so they're just generally more memorable, and then. Um, we proposed a technique, very famous in the uh, memory kind of community, which is to sort of imagine them going around a space. And actually, for your blog Tim, I remember embarrassing myself on my local street in a snowstorm, trying to wander around, demonstrating how to place images in space. It's like, <laughs> "Oh, look up there! There's."
1: You know, oh, there's I remember that. You know, I, remember that. A, I remember that. I remember that very closely. Uh, yeah. So people people can search for uh, Ed yeah. cook, cook 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 with the knee on the blog to find that video.
0: Yeah. Uh, anyhow, so, um, so we did the competition. Um, so people learn the technique and they could practice with this cool um, system on the, on the website. And um, what was astonishing was that, you know, a few thousand people entered, you know, most people um, like basically couldn't be bothered and gave up quite quickly. But, but, but basically anyone who did persevere and actually just learn the images and then start practicing, um, many of them got really good, really, really fast. And, um, the girl who ended up winning it, um, who, whose name is Irina Zayat, she's a, um, fabulous young lady, a programmer who, um, who uh, lives in the Ukraine. I tried to recruit her for memorize actually. She was sort of only dimly interested, but anyway, she, um, she, um, did it in about four days. <laughs> uh, so she just like sat on her computer and practiced a thing. And then within four days, so I basically nailed it and could do it under a second. And, and then at the memorized Christmas party, um, that year we, we piped her in live on Skype to prove that she could actually do it and wasn't cheating. And so there's a party of about 200 people cramming into the church, you know, scenes of unbelievable debauchery, Tim. Uh, I, uh, I eyes, shake his I, I eyes wide, them.
1: eyes wide shut.
0: Uh, one of the, yeah, well, of yeah, it was, yeah. The, yeah, it was that, but we better <laughs> chat, you know, and, and better lighting. Uh, anyhow um yeah so she just nailed it again live on skype um under the pressure we, we told her i think that that was how she could actually win the prize and um and that's kind of a, just a nice example you know like it's um it is very doable and um yeah. I, had a, I had a kind of another interesting experience with um where I, met a, I, I went to the U.S. memory championships, I think, in 2005 with, um, with my friend. <laughs> so so uh, this is a bit of a sort of diversion, but I'll tell the anecdote. So I, I got this friend called Lucas, who's from Austria uh, and from Vienna, who is um, uh, an absolutely hilarious and wonderful fellow, who um, before we'd done this, uh, we'd been contacted by Channel 4, and they were like, we're just interested to hear how, how memory athletes train. And... Um, I, I I've always been a bit suspicious, to be honest, of the concept of sort of self hacking. You know, I, I've never been quite quite clear whether that's something I really want to do in my life. But anyway, so I I, I said, well, you know, like we like to go to high altitude and um, go into complete seclusion. And I was kind of channeling an image of Ricky Hatton, the boxer, you know, going into the mountains and sort of going through some. Anyway, they were like awesome. <laughs> so anyway, Lucas and I we headed up into the mountains. And we um <laughs> we we put on as a sort of comedy show, uh, and this can be found on YouTube actually but a um a kind of image of what a men- mental athlete's training program would look like lots of sort of press ups involving claps and um competitive um boxing style mutual recitation of binary numbers and stuff anyhow so um it it's it's a kind of it's a minor for, for the sort of 12 or 13 people who um in your in, in your listenership who um who think that um Actually, well, fuck it. Uh, I'm going to. A, I'm going to an anecdote within an anecdote. I'm not going to follow. Okay, so so we went to America and we went to the US memory championships, and um, it was it was quite hilarious. So so both of us um, at that point, non-American competitors were not really allowed to compete, but we were allowed to compete. And um, anyway, we came first and second by a margin of about times three because at that point the sport was not very well developed in the US, and. Um, Anyway, there was a journalist there and he was like, oh, my God, you're a geek, you're a uh, a savant and the rest of it. And I was like, "Uh, no, mate, you know, we were we're two young lads who've got an enthusiasm for memory techniques. And so he was like, well, then, but this is impossible. So I was like, no, 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 I'll I'll train you. So uh, so I trained him for a year and uh, he wound up the next year. And by the way, I'm a pretty brutal coach. It's a kind of a way of... um, it's a way for me to transcend my in- own insufficiencies is to criticize others. And so, so I trained him up for a year. And, uh, yeah, he wound up winning the American Memory Championships. Um, and, um, yeah, and it was pretty cool. And he wrote a book about it. Um, that was Joshua which, which Joshua he, Four. Correct? Uh, that's Josh. Yeah, that's
1: Joshua Four. Uh, um, yeah, he's super cool. Moonwalking with Einstein. Uh, yeah, very, very... Uh... Book did very very well. Had a great piece in Wired that introduced me to that uh, as well. Um, but uh, sorry to interrupt. Not my uh, no, not no, my no, intention. No yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Br- brought everything to a standstill. Quite drunk
1: now, by the way, Tim. I, oh, I'm perfect, that, um, perfect. Well, I, yeah. I was I was I was uh, I was taken aback by your your sudden silence, which I mistook for for uh, shyness, yeah, no, 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 shyness, yeah. but I think it's I just drunkenness. What uh, I was just sort of. Taking another slug on the, on the, the oh, nice, Uh, nice, nice, nice. I'll have to get you a camel um, for our next podcast. The, the, uh, so, so so the, so just to put, just to put things in perspective for folks with, uh, it was Arena, right? The Ukrainian woman. Um, yeah. So she, she learned to memorize a, a, a shuffled or randomized deck of cards in less than a minute in four or five days. Uh, and the, previous US record i guess a, a few years ago had been what 147 seconds or something along those lines um yeah so she beat the US record with four to five days of training i mean granted it was an older record but I, I think that that just highlights what is possible for people and uh the 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 question i'd love to ask you is i mean what, what are some some uh some perhaps if if people have an afternoon and uh, they are not going to necessarily focus on the pack uh, of cards, is there something else that they can do to prove to themselves that they have greater uh, sort of mental athleticism or memorization potential than they've ever thought possible? Is there something else that they can do?
0: They can make love to a beautiful woman in their imaginations without moving a muscle.
1: Okay. Why would you recommend that? Um, well, that was a joke, Tim. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, you got me. You're so dry. It's
1: just dry British humor. We're, we're still dragging our knuckles so was, over here. That
0: was actually just, that was a straight, straight out. Not that funny. Uh, but uh, I suppose the, the, the tinkle of a thought, which underlies every joke there, uh, the tinkle of a thought which underlies the joke there is just the, um, the um, imagination is um and our capacity to form images just while talking just while communicating mm-hmm. is um is already extraordinarily potent and and so I, you know uh, you know people so well, the thing which confuses people is like how can you possibly like form an image in a second which you then end up remembering five minutes later. Mm-hmm. And, um, the example I like to give is that that's what happens in conversation the entire time. Mm. So, you know, if I say to you, um, I might just describe my office to you, Tim, and we'll actually test your memory. I know, I know that you're sort of, um, getting on a bit and, um,
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> getting, getting a little, a little long in the yeah, tooth. Yeah. A little bit, sure. a
0: little bit sort of uh, doddery, but, um, but yeah, so if I describe the office, we've got a quite a colorful office. So I'm going to kind of, I'm going to begin where i am and about um 15 seconds i'm going to describe to you the sequence of objects i'm going to see and i'm going to make it a bit more vivid by imagining myself as an amusing character kind of leaping around so like let's say that i am um can you can you why don't you name the amusing character tim uh amusing mortimer Mortimer Okay, so I'm Mortimer um and I'm yattering into a laptop and then I take the bottle of wine right by me and I fling it into the wall where there's a picture of 25 I don't know what they are but I mean let's just say yakuza in sort of jock straps and tattoos japanese men um or a picture of them on the wall and then I jump around and there there's there's a hammock and in the hammock there are um two lambs um, this is not true, by the way, but anyway, two lambs eating cheese, um, and then you jump over the hammock, and then, then suddenly there's a grand piano, and there's a young man playing Chopin, um, and he's uh, chopping away at the piano, um, and then move over, and there, there's a swing. So he goes from the piano to the swing, there's Mortimer, and the swing is covered in pink roses, and if you kind of trace up the swing um, up the rope, you'll see that at the very top, there is a, a, a model of a rhesus monkey just dangling from the top of the rope. Jumping back down, you land on the kitchen table where four people, four uh, unfortunate memorized employees, are just trying to sort of have a quiet evening in, um, you know, reflecting on the on the vicissitudes of life. But thereby the big arga, the big metal oven, and um, the the metal oven is emitting uh, heat. And on the agar, there is a pot full of um, spoons. Okay, so that was um, an incoherent narrative lasting about 45 seconds, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. uh, in which I... Uh, mentioned Mortis, Mortimer's little adventure. Mm-hmm. And um and you know the first thing I'd say to your listenership is that just merely by listening to that, you've followed it, you've formed images at the speed of talk, which is, you know, one or two images a second, and you've strung that into a coherent mental concept or incoherent one, you know, I, I'm drunk. Come on, calm down guys. But anyway, you you strung it into into a coherent mental concept. In a, in a spectacularly small number of seconds. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal if you think yeah. that it's even possible to follow that. Uh, but anyhow, Tim, we're going we're now going to test you. So I'm on my laptop. Yep. Mortimer's there, and he's looking at the laptop. What happens next?
1: Uh, he grabs a, a bottle of wine, which is right next to him, throws it into a picture on the wall, which has 25 Yakuza and jockstraps with tattoos. That's uh, yep. And then uh, I'm having a bit of recency primacy here. And then um, af- yep. af- after that... Um I wanna say they're there are two lambs in a hammock. That's correct, yeah. And uh I don't recall what they're eating. Yeah, that's what they they're eating cheese, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And then very good. uh then jumping out of the hammock to a uh I believe it's piano after that. There's a gentleman playing Chopin nice. and chopping huh. away at the keyboard, which was a very clever of you to use the CH twice, that helped. Uh and then um uh then from there we 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 get to a swing which has mm. is covered in pink roses and oddly enough has a model of a rhesus monkey hanging at the very top of it yep. uh and when mortimer jumps off the swing he lands on a a kitchen table where there are four memorized employees just trying to go about their business and it's very disruptive quite obviously uh and there is uh then next to them a this is where i got tripped up a little bit um the Uh the auger on the stovetop (laughs) i don't know what an auger is uh Uh, uh, but this is this but but there's a pot on top of whatever an auger is with spoons in it and then that's the uh, the curtain falls and that's the end of the mortimer show as i remember it
0: that's so so well done tim so yeah i just to sort of articulate what you've done there so you've gone Laptop bottle of wine, Yakuza, 25 of them, jock straps, so we're up to about six items. Hammock, lambs, cheese, piano, shop and chopping, swing, pink roses, recess, jumping off, landing, kitchen table, memorize employees. Arga, even though you didn't know what an Arga was, it is, by the way, um, this marvelous kind of European oven, which is basically a... um, a one ton block of iron permanently heated, um, which acts as central heating and as a cooking mechanism, um, which is what, and it, and on top of that there was a pot with spoons so it says you know it 's twenty things you 've correctly remembered in sequence there, just really by dint of understanding human language, mm-hmm. which you have successfully uh, recounted in order um, and for that the uh, the narrative helps, but it just kind of gives gives one an insight into how these aren't um, in the same way that, say, for instance, firing an arrow through a, um, a blackbird, you know, which is flying through the sky is like a skill you almost have to learn, you know, on the, on the top of basic motor skills, but you have to learn it very, very specifically. These sort of memory techniques draw from quite fundamental cognitive capacities. They're quite, you know, it's quite, um, it's quite basic. And, you know, I do this other thing where I, I kind of I do these things called memory walks. Where you just get a bunch of random pedestrians, gathered together, and say, Okay, we're going to learn whatever, you know, the US presidents, the first pharaohs of Egypt, or what have you. And you just wander around a town for about an hour, and you're like, Oh, imagine, you know, George Washington there. I don't know who George Washington is, I'm English. Okay, but imagine George the shark washing himself tons. And so they go, Okay, very good. They imagine that in the window over there. And you can wander around, and with no prior training whatsoever, you can sort of uh, – I mean, unlock is too strong a word. You can just um, make use of the fairly phenomenal underlying kind of cognitive capacities that you have at your disposal all the time. So, so it's, it's, it's not a kind of elusive geek skill fundamentally. It's, it's basically just a kind of cunning use of what the human brain does best, namely process real meaning, imagine interesting things happening in space – and, um, and kind of integrate
1: narratives. I know I, it's, it's something that I feel like, uh, and this, this actually touches on, uh, a, sort of a deeper, uh, I wouldn't say insecurity, but a conflict that I have, an inner conflict that I'm hoping you can help me resolve um very uh i'm very i'm, I'm very uh, indecisive about my sexuality no that's not it um i wanted to uh sexually ambiguous it's caused me a lot of strife uh no that's that's also not it the the question is related <laughs> to utility of highly refining certain memory capabilities so i, I when i was uh-huh. in when i was in college i read uh, a number of books uh including i think it's just called your memory and how to improve it. It's like the most generic. I think yeah. that's it, Higby. Uh, most generic title imaginable for something that talks about vivid imagery. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. but I I remember becoming very fascinated by memorizing numbers and uh mm-hmm. I might be getting the terminology wrong. Please correct me uh, if if I am. But the the sort of number consonant system where you're you're converting uh-huh. the numbers into consonants. You convert those into words into images. And that allows you to memorize long uh long strings of of digits and i would and I would place these images around typically my surroundings and I think that might have been a weakness in my method. I would always use wherever I happened to be as opposed to a predetermined route uh, the yeah. The only benefit to that method is that <laughs> i when i when I would play this game with people and I would typically have them pull out a a five a a single and a twenty dollar bill, so I'd have them pull out bills of different denominations and I'd memorize the serial numbers on those different bills. And then Mm -hmm. we show you the center of the party Tim. Oh yeah. It was, I wasn't fast enough to make it really exciting. I was like, okay, cool. Give me five minutes. And they're like, what? Okay, this is really boring. Um, but what was really fun about it is I would memorize these numbers. They would, they'd be like, oh wow, it's amazing. And then I'd do them backwards. Oh my God, that's amazing. And then, uh, but it only took a, a really a week or two of practice to get to that point, and I'm and I'm so confident that almost anyone can do that. The what was fun about having the the loci, I mean the the locations, wah, dependent on where I was sitting at the time, is that very often I could bump into that person a week later and say, "Hey, you still have that five or that single or that 20. I can I can give you the serial number, and I could remember it because I had so many distinct locations, which was kind of a fun trick. Yeah. Um, but the it took a decent amount of effort to get good at that. And what I'm wondering is, uh, are, do you find that there are any particular mental exercises that have a high degree of carryover to other areas, or that have more utility than others? Because there's there's so many different kind of party tricks that you could develop, or competitive capabilities. Is if you had to pick one that you think people would get the most out of, is is that even a, a possible is that a good question but i think about this because it does take time to sort of main for me to maintain a high degree of proficiency with these things
0: right um i, I think that i mean <laughs> i wouldn't necessarily recommend to you know anybody with um, a rounded social life to get too deep into <laughs> the uh, the number memorization stuff but i mean for for me um the, the interest in memory techniques kind of, um, is, I guess, you know, emerges out of a much more general, um, interesting consciousness and sort of, um, yeah, the, um, the curiosities of having a mind of the character that we have. And, um, to the question, um, you know, what is the most generalizable, useful, um, concept, not maybe requiring practice that one can draw out of, um, the, the, theory and sort of history of memory techniques. I think I'd give two answers. And the first is, um, you remember things which ignite your imagination. Um, and we all know this in our hearts, you know, you know, if you're really into soccer or football, as we call it here, you know, you might be a a, a a pathetic kid at school, but you might be able to remember something like, you know, if you actually added it up, 12,000 distinct football results, the equivalent of a kind of medical degree uh, in terms of scale of information, it's because you're interested. And so um, I think a lot of people um, are kind of embarrassed about uh, the characteristics of their mind, That you know, about the things that they have a greater tendency to remember, uh, the things which they feel they need to do to really wrap their mind around a topic. And so the, the first thing would just be like, The most, um, the things which, um, you find stimulating and interesting are the things you'll remember and don't censor yourself in finding what those things are and allowing yourself to kind of, uh, experience information in that way. Um, and so I'll try and make that concrete. You know, um, I think that, um, a lot of people will be reading some nonfiction book about economics and it will sort of ignite in the back of their mind the idea that this is actually a bit like their friend Al. Um, and how he uh, how he behaves with with their mate Dan, um, but it's actually officially about you know U.S. China relations, and you know that metaphor that that way of comprehending mm-hmm. things, that very kind of personal perhaps trivial um, manner of comprehending things through the filter of one's own experience gets suppressed, leading to kind of boredom and um, a, a lack of emotional engagement with the subject matter, mm-hmm. and so you know. Uh, yeah just to say it succinctly like just just back wherever your mind needs to go and endorse it and ignite interest through kind of imagination would be one thing God, that's a very unsuccinct uh, piece of advice uh second thing is more succinct uh which is just that um when two things are in the same place either in your mind or on a diagram or um in a semantic space if you they will get confused with each other. Um, and and I think the genius of the spatial techniques is the genius of having different contexts for different thoughts. And you touched upon this actually with um with your own um adventures with five and ten dollar bills, which is that where thoughts, where experiences and thoughts are separated, um, they stand alone, they don't interfere, and they can um they can persist through time. But where they are um sort of spatially connected in, you know, actual experience or um or spatially connected kind of within the mind. So where um um where where two concepts just feel very, very similar and you kind of when you're thinking about them, you kinda of think about them the same way. They will tend to fuse with each other and then fail to be distinct entities in their own right. So just literally separating stuff out in space is incredible as a general cognitive tip for brainstorming for resolving arguments for clarifying emotions in a relationship to you know anything and uh, you know because uh because of this i i I discovered some quite interesting thing about how to design house parties um so you know i used to have these um these moments where you know you have an incredible house party you talk to 25 really interesting people it would be you know super thing at the time you're just flush with happiness. And then the next day the whole thing would be in your mind, it would just be a kind of a blur. You'd just be like, Yeah, I, I recall being in the kitchen and there were some people there and we chatted about stuff. But but because all those kind of memories are on top of each other because of the spatial constraints of a house party, you don't really remember all the things which happened. And and if you can sort of take a house party, and this is true of any kind of experience, it could be true of um an evening out with friends—it could be true. With a, it's obviously true of road trips. Um, it could be true even of um, of a friendship or a romance or anything else. If things are kind of spread out through space, if if each kind of context or experience has its own place, then they can all live by themselves, and you just get a much richer level of kind of autobiographic memory. Um, And so with house parties specifically, I kind of recommend um, always having three or four phases to a house party, uh, preferably with a different style, a different kind of music, um, a different fundamental focus spatially, um, and narrativize the transitions between them. So rather than just being like, there's a splurge of a house party and everyone's just getting drunk and trying to chat each other up, instead you have a kind of a phase where you're being quite posh and drinking champagne and listening to, um, you know, listening to French music, and then um, a bunch of people arrive and you're like, okay, we're now going to eat, and what's more, we're going to eat on one leg, and so you have a bunch of time hopping around, <laughs> chewing on reindeer or whatever it is, and then uh, up onto the roof, it's a rave, and you've got a different thing, and so by by creating a kind of artificial structure, you end up with. Um, You end up with much richer experience, Um, um, and uh, yeah. So that that, that would be. (laughs) Let's summarise, Tim. Two pieces of advice are like: um, make stuff vivid and personally interesting, and don't censor yourself. And then, if you are relating to anything, it could be learning or even just personal experience. Um, Find individual spaces for each thing, um, because then they'll survive by themselves and not just kind of merge into the um into the kind of
1: fog of uh, of similarity right blending together into indistinguishability so that that has uh it's funny when you when you start to think of just the the basic programming that we have uh that of course has a lot of applications to dating as well uh and you you did mention something in passing i wanted to come back to which was clarifying your feelings about a relationship and i wanted to know how how do you think about that because this is a pain point for a lot of people at different points in their lives, or at least a source of anxiety. How do you try to, uh, if this is even the objective, find objectivity when clarifying your feelings about a relationship, or maybe it's just getting a better understanding of your, of your own subjectivity? But uh, I, I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of <laughs> dissect minor I, challenge. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to just unpack that a little bit. So how would, how do you think about clarifying? feelings in a relationship. It's, it's actually quite funny because um, my girlfriend's
0: called Clara and your accent does sound clarifying. <laughs> 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 so it's like, I was like, how do you think about clarifying my relationship? Well, my relationship with Clara, I, I'm not, not sure there's much more I can do, but, um, but anyway, so, um, I mean, I, I'm definitely not in a uh, relationship guru, but I mean, I, I, I'm happy to freestyle on this subject because I think it is fascinating. and It is a lot of, it's a big source of pain. And, you know, and it's also, it's, in, and it's not just romantic relationships. It's also, um, you know, creative and personal relationships and relationships with friends. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, I've, uh, I've suddenly sort of, um, thought about this a bunch because one of the surprising features of adult life alongside like, um, not being competent, as you always assume you're going to become competent or whatever uh, and um, uh, and the fact that sort of um, that you are actually going to become an adult, which is kind of, you know, obviously when you're 18, you know, it's a pretty abstract thing and you kind of, you know, aging is a kind of comic um, encounter with something you can conceptually deny with certain futility. But anyhow, so relationships would be the other thing where you kind of um, where when you're looking at a person you're in some sense, you're experiencing the entire, or at least, um, that person is the focus of, and, and the undifferentiated focus of a whole like incredibly complex, um, tissue of fundamentally distinct, you know, emotions and judgments and attitudes. Um, and so, you know, you find yourself in a relationship, you know, in, in an argument say and you're like, well, um, and you basically you're, you you come from an emotion. You come from an emotion, which is like you probably don't perceive yourself, and you're thinking like I don't um, feel very happy about what's going on, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tendency is to map that against basically whatever springs into your mind, um, or whatever the person is is telling you, or what the situation is. Uh, and so you know this is why like someone's late to a restaurant, and someone can go absolutely mental about it. And of course, it's got nothing to do with being late to the restaurant. It's part of a whole load of other stuff, which is not, not directly the same thing. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah. So, for instance, I, I would narrate, um, an, an argument that, that I have had, which turned out to be, um, amazingly stupid. Um, Actually, I'm not sure now I actually think about what this argument was about. <laughs> I'm not sure your timorous readers really want to listeners, sorry. Uh, uh, no, no, uh this, really wanna hear this, about it. This is good. I want to uh, hear about it. So um so I had a um uh, you're gonna have to cut this out of the final recording, so I'm just gonna have to pause and just sort of <laughs> jumping to another topic. One of the fascinating things about language is that when you begin a sentence, even if you sort of have a, a intimation of how the sentence is going to end up. You've actually got no knowledge of where, what the sentence particular formulation is going to be. So you, as you initiate a sentence, you have kind of like, oh, something interesting to be said with a particular kind of internal mental urge. And the words begin to come out and you kind of shepherd it in a slightly chaotic fashion to the end of the piece of meaning you had implicitly wanted to emit at the beginning of a sentence, but which is not like consciously before your eyes at the beginning. It just kind of, it's like a seed, which becomes a tree. The seed contains the tree, but the seed doesn't look like the tree or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, well, a similar thing with anecdotes. Um, you know, you, I think, Oh, this is a really good anecdote. Best, best tell Tim about this anecdote. And then, um, actually the anecdote is not actually before your eyes and so I have to take a quick time out just to see where this anecdote is actually going to end up <laughs> <laughs> no because, problem <laughs> like, like, yeah,
1: um, <laughs> I can give you if you'd like a uh, a respite or a, yeah, a thanks. pause yeah, yeah. I can ask uh-huh. a few other uh, and this, and uh, I might forget to come back to it so we can also do that um, but, uh, I, I would like to come back to it, but I'm I could, I could hit you with a couple of rapid fire questions if that would take the pressure yeah. off. Okay. Yeah. When you think of the word successful, who is the first person who comes to mind and why? Um,
0: so I think of the German poet Goethe, um, who, um, and so, but actually this is a, this is a good, this is a good topic. And and I'm by the way, very happy to return to the previous one because, um, they're both interesting, but, um, but I, I, I'm quite suspicious of, um, um, the concept of merit. So like, it seems to be like one of the guiding, if you like philosophical assumptions of, um, you know, and, and I think actually, especially like, Western American, Californian, um, culture that merit is the correct thing to drive outcomes in humans' lives. So, you know, if you try hard and, you know, work your balls off and you're inherently really talented and you're not benefiting from, say, you know, inherited wealth or whatever, then the success and happiness and whatever else, which might supposedly emerge from that is justified. Um, and um and, and in fact Tim, you know, you um you know, you write books in some sense and you know and you're you're interested in, you develop the concept of improving as a person, of um of finding kind of powers and talents and um and possibilities within yourself. And this is kind of an inherently attractive idea, right? And it's very difficult on the face of it to say, Well actually you know, there's a problem with this, but, uh, and I'm not saying, not saying there is, but, but, you know, merit is kind of a fundamental assumption of, of, um, of goodness.
1: Um, and the merit is associated with effort. I guess I just want to define, um, uh, well, so I think the noble concept of merit is
0: associated with effort. So it's like, um, if you do something really incredible and you tried really hard, that, that success is something you deserve. We, we think of that as like morally justifiable. um, which is kind of problematic for sociological reasons, but also problematic for kind of, uh, and the sociological reasons being <clears throat> some people have, you know, the opportunity and situation to express their talents kind of thing. But it's also uh, problematic because, you know, you just don't choose your merits. Um, and so you might say, okay, I don't choose my merits, um, but actually I do choose them because I trained really hard and I learned about how to improve myself and I expressed discipline. But again, the underlying capacities which allowed you to find the time to train hard and control your discipline these aren 't things you choose and you know and so so the, so almost all of our kind of um, our culture of admiration for people who do really well is based on this kind of implicit moral idea that people determine their own outcomes but once you kind of begin digging into that it 's not really clear they 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 do um, and the second part of that is um you know, what are the kind of categories and concepts with which we use to kind of determine merit? So, like, um, you know, I'm always really struck by the fact that, um, that, um, that, for instance, in our society, there are people who are, um, have a level of genius for artistic expression and, um, other things which aren't kind of commercially valued, um, and therefore aren't really culturally valued except in extreme cases. Um, who are, you know, are earning like seven pounds an hour working in a cafe. Um, They have a mental world and range of learning and sophistication of perspective, you know, which is enormously rich and like obviously comparable with, and in most cases, in many cases, like, you know, superior to according to a different perspective, someone who's like really good at coding and commands $200,000 a year and has high status and so on and so forth. Um, And, you know, in that case, there's a kind of a, a kind of capitalistic, I guess, reason for ascribing merit to one person over over another. Um, but you know, you change the perspective even slightly, and um, the merit flips completely. And so, the, the, the whole kind of concept of merit um, does depend on these kind of background thoughts about about what is valuable, which is kind of
1: often problematic. How would you um, flip the <laughs> How would you flip the perspective with the artistic? Barista versus the coder.
0: Also, one one example, one different paradigm would be like um, towards richness of experience. So um, which, um, you know, which people's mental lives would make for a better novel? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, I'm not sure if that's uh, whatever. Or or you could say like, you know, effect on the environment. You know, someone who's super dynamic and successful in the rest of it will tend to fly around and... Create capital and spend the capital and generally heat up the world economy, which will generally heat up the world and so on and so you know we we, we have no way of tracking the kind of externalities of human action either um, in terms of karma i e the emotions of the people who surround and come into contact with them, or in terms of say environmental impact because we can 't track them, and even if we could we uh, we might not um, we don't so these aren't these aren 't metrics which we could. Can tune into right, um, and because they're matrix, we not. We can't tune into. We just kind of assume they don't really exist, um, and they they have no real influence on you know um, a changes in behavior, but b you know what as a society or culture we find easy to admire. Um, so how did how did Goethe?
1: make you think of Merrick. <laughs> 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 yeah,
0: just like Jesus, man. And I'm just asking a simple question. And you've got a yattering on some sort of like half
1: baked left wing nonsense. Okay, uh, well Goethe was just like um, I know Goethe you just, I know you hate Ayn Rand. That's fine. Um, what uh, do you think of Goethe? No, no. <laughs> so Goethe
0: um, so Goethe's really cool. So he's like um, at the age of twenty-five, he um, you know as a teenager he sort of um, falling in love the entire time and writing poetry to his friends and so on. At the age of 25, he uh, writes a um, novel which kind of uh, is of you know, extraordinary brilliance. It's called The Troubles of Young Werther. It's this wonderful uh, story of a young man who, um, who um, falls in love and um, it doesn't really work out so well. And as an aside, Goethe wrote this book by locking himself in a hotel room for three months imagining his five best friends on different chairs, and then discussing with his imaginary friends different possibilities of plot and so on and so forth, wow. um, which is an example, by the way, of that spatial separation I was talking about, which is to say that in one's own mind, one is somehow kind of inherently boxed in and constricted. And by like imagining in different spatial locations different perspectives and then kind of iterating an idea or or, um, or novel in this case... Through those perspectives, he was able to kind of give himself five perspectives, separate it out, and uh, and give himself a kind of multi-dimensional playground for creating the work of art. Which, by the way, is an awesome creative technique. Anyhow, so he does that, and then he starts writing. You know, the best poetry is already the best prose stylist in the history of the German language, and then. Um, there's this, like, Germany at that time was kind of bricked, lots of little kingdoms. He was, he got appointed in at the Weimar Republic as a kind of poet in residence, but then just got really interested in loads of other stuff. So he started, like, redirecting the construction of the canal system and doing various other stuff and, um, and doing lots of kind of inventive things. And so then he gets into, um, um, basically administered, administering, uh, human affairs and he becomes incredibly good at that. And then at the age of 39, um, he basically falls in love for the first time, truly. Uh, or maybe that was slightly before. Well- but anyhow, he just disappears one day. He's like he's in this very prestigious, sort of important position. He's kind of like the mayor of Weimar, effectively. Uh, and then he just pisses off to Italy, just <laughs> re- leaving a small note. And then um, basically runs around, you know, falls in love with lots of beautiful people, writes some of the best sort of sexual erotic poetry ever written. Meanwhile, he's becoming, you know, it comes back, becomes incredibly interested in. Um, in Newton's theory of physics, which he thinks is appalling and like doesn't capture the mystery and beauty of color at all. So he writes a theory of color, um, which is still like, um, uh, an amazing fount of incredible goodness for philosophers and stuff about the phenomenology of color perception and how shade and context and meaning influenced the character of color. Um, and then, meanwhile, he's writing Faust, you know, a famous play, is the kind of greatest work. And he kind of completes that in his fifties, but but hasn't lost energy at all and goes through like three or four totally different styles of poetry. Um, you know, and by the time he dies, at the age of eighty-two-ish. He, um, has become really interested in Eastern culture. And, and did I forget to mention that he, he, he's got this deep aesthetic vision of, um, of science and our relationship to nature and it comes up with basically what's a theory of evolution. Um, and, 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 and like studies plants and human. And, and he, there's this particular thing there, which uh, at the time, a justification for humans' differences from the animals, which I think was called the intermaximillary bone, some random bone (laughs) in your jaw. And, you know, it's amazing how we try and distinguish ourselves, you know, opposable thumbs, language, humor, there's, you know, consciousness, uh, intelligence. Uh, And at that point, it was the intermaximillary bone. And he actually did some dissections of animals and young humans to show that this bone was present in both. It fuses later in life, and therefore is not the basis, you know, and, and so therefore it can be missed. But, but humans and animals are fundamentally the same. And he talks about plants and, and and the similarity of plant, um, the kind of efflorescence of a flower with the way the human cranium, um, kind of bends round and links up with itself. And so he's kind of, he's just cool. He's like <laughs> expressive. He's incredibly independent. When Napoleon invades, um, I think he was living in Frankfurt at the time. When Napoleon invades Frankfurt, everyone else is like sheltering in the houses and he was wandering the fields looking for evidence about the color pink for his theory of colors. It's totally kind of transcending the local context. <laughs> um, and, uh, anyway, so he's just interested in all this stuff. He's, um, passionate and intuitive. Um, he is a genius, which helps. Um, but he produces a kind of a body of work and a set of perspectives, which, um, which is just fundamentally life-affirming, and uh, in a way which kind of carries through the ages. And so, like, I actually got into Goethe but like, on, my, on my, yeah, I was travelling around at the age of eighteen, the world, which is what people in England do, and between school, high school, and university. And um, in my coat, I just had Goethe's aphorisms, his short little thoughts, in my pocket. And so, I read and reread and reread this book. It's actually had quite a fundamental perspective on my life because these are his like little snippets of wisdom on almost any imaginable topic. Um, and all of them are brilliant. You know, it's things like the company of women is schooling in good manners or <laughs> boldness has genius power and magic or, you know, uh, and then there were ones you don't remember in, um, in, um, their precise form, but which nonetheless act as little micro filters for interpreting reality. Um, and uh anyway so so he's had kind of a big influence on me i mean one of his quotes actually is like uh something along the lines of there is nothing so depressing as um someone who is heroic um being praised by somebody who isn't because when we praise people we put ourselves on a level with them um and so <laughs> so i was actually just trying to think of like a quote which related to this situation and so here i am praising Goethe. And actually, as I'm describing Goethe, I'm kind of channeling a bit of his general awesomeness and feeling a bit better about myself. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, anyways. anyways, uh, And by the way, just as a general concept, that that phenomenon of how a memory can influence perception is the fundamental reason why I think it's still worth knowing things even though we can look them up. Because um, by looking everything up, we give away and divest of the kind of central flow of our consciousness, genuine um, richness, (laughs) you know, because it's by having, you know, it's by being able to recognize the difference between 20 different birds that you don't just perceive a bird, you perceive, ah, you know, a a particular variety of bird. And what on earth is it doing around here at this time of year? It must be lost. Perhaps the migration patterns being fucked up by global warming, whatever It, it turns like, pure data into connection with a meaningful world. And that's kind of what memory does. And, um, and so, and and that would be kind of my general justification for, for,
1: for remembering things. Um, no, I like that. Uh, the, this is something that I, I also grapple with just as, as I strive to be the master of this tool that is technology and not the tool (laughs) of the master that is technology. The, you mentioned two things about Guta that I wanted to dig into a little bit. You mentioned, uh, passion and intuition. And, um you, you can revise that, but those are two of the characteristics of Guta that you, that you pulled out. And one of the reasons that I, I reached out to you, uh, very much at the 11th hour yesterday to see if you wanted to, to chat and catch up and just record it because I thought it'd be fun for people to listen to is that been having, I've been having a bit of a tough time with medical issues related to Lyme disease and other things and uh, have felt a little, a little down, a bit, in a bit of a slump. And I mm-hmm. find that you are always, you always strike me as very, and, and this could be an illusion, so feel free to disabuse me of this notion, but in you know, a very excited, very passionate, very uh, energized. And I'm, I'm wondering if that is something that you feel you've, you've you've always had intrinsically or if it's something you've developed and if if the latter and maybe it's a combination you know how do you strive to to encourage that type of state um you know what what are the things that contribute to your better moments and those are a lot of fucking questions in one but uh, and i don't <laughs> it, have i, I don't know i don't have alcohol as an yeah. excuse but
0: yeah no, well, I, I do for, for my sort of slowing nonsense at this end of the skeptical but um well first of all sorry to hear about the the medical stuff and the dip of, um, dip of enthusiasm. That's, um, undoubtedly tough. And, um, uh, second thing, um, no, I'm not always <laughs> really happy about stuff. I mean, I, I, it's funny, like doing a company has been, um, an amazing journey uh, full of just like the highest highs and the most like Execrable, horrifying lows. (laughs) You know, uh, you know, because it's sort of, uh, it's, you know, I guess it's just life really, but, um, everything, you know, you start a company, everything turns, starts out, you know, like, oh, this is going to be absolutely incredible. You know, do something amazing. Everyone's going to love it and it's all going to be beautiful sort of thing. And then, um, and then it turns out to be just like a much more complex human process than that. And you have, um, you know, you have breakdowns in relationships with people you love and you have, um, decisions you make where you subsequently realise that they were the wrong decision and it caused a lot of people's pain and you have um successes which are wonderful but which are compromised by the fact that they weren't what they should have been because anyway so so i mean, of course like anybody else like i'm um I'm, uh, a, uh, you know, I have, uh, <laughs> access to the full range of, of, of goodness and badness in human experience, obviously. Um, I, I am quite keen on life though, Tim, <laughs> like I do, I do. Um, and I, and you can
1: sense that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious.
0: Uh, I I don't know where that, I mean, I, cause I mean, i I guess I've, I am, I suppose it's also that I get my energy from the world and other people rather than internally. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very kind of, um, uninterested generally in, um, supposedly scientific assessments of, you know, personality and, and so on and so forth. I, I think that, um, the reductive impulse is, um, demeaning to humans. (laughs) I'm also probably quite worried about what I discovered if I really looked into it. But, um, but, um, but I am extrovert. And I did read one thing uh, in my studies of cognitive science, which struck me as a fascinating piece of self-knowledge, which is that, you know, introverted people tend to have a much higher internal level of energy so that a proactive interactive in, interaction with their environment isn't so necessary to keep them rewarded and interested and for richness. And I am um, undoubtedly extroverted, so I absolutely love and gain huge energy from um interacting with people and, and so on and so forth. Um and so so that's that, that's kind of a personality thing. Um regarding um like passion, I guess it's um this kind of might connect with a few interesting issues, but I think that um that I suppose I'm I, I'm a dick and so I hate doing things which bore me. Wait, did you and say you're I, a dick? Yeah. I mean, as in like, okay. you know, almost everyone in life has to like, <laughs> you know, sl- slop it up and just get on with things because things are great. But like, I have a kind of quite visceral emotional reaction against being <laughs> bored. Right. And that does, um and that does influence things. Uh, the other thing you touched upon there, which I think is such a good subject is intuition. Mm. Because um the process of rationally justifying to yourself your action is incredibly slow, um full of like grayness and complexity, and generally um like it's like um it's sort of a five percent efficient process of moving forward in one's ideas and beliefs. Um, because, you know, you're like, oh, you know, we should really do this in the, you know, on memorize or, you know, we should, or, or, um, I think I, I, I think this girl is like the person I want to marry. But, and then you, if you allow rationality into this, um, you end up with like, um, a, situation where all the energy is going in the wrong place it's like but on the other hand you know is she is she you know is she really going to get along with me in old age and like what kind of person am I really looking to like connect with and <laughs> yeah, And so you know you could you could sort of double question yourself to death on, on most things and when you know when life is really really good one isn't like pissing around like going oh I really I, you, know, <laughs> you know like oh you know it's you know should I turn left or right out of the door today? You know, you, you end up as kind of existential Borden's ass stuck between a million possibilities and never really doing anything. Right. Whereas when things are going really well, you're just like, this feels right. Might be wrong. Don't give a shit. Let's go. <laughs> and that is so energetic. Uh, and this is actually something, I mean, I've, I, I've really had a journey in this within the, uh, within memoirs, uh, because, um, because, um, like my intention with it actually isn't at all with, um, with helping people remember more effectively, which is the kind of thing you might do to a computer chip or, you know, you know, it's, it, that is a, a, an element in something much more interesting, which is like helping people feel like a genius or helping people love the world they're learning about or helping people just get pleasure out of, their minds and the richness of their consciousness and learning. Um, and, and the, one of the things about like, as I think it is probably true in almost any profession, with a startup, you've got this thing where you're like, you've got the, the, the push and shove between what happens in one month's time and what happens in 12 months time. And, um, and so a lot of the time you're like, well. Wow, um, yeah, this idea we've had would be absolutely incredible and would make people feel like geniuses. But on the other hand, it's not going to move any metrics for two months, and it sounds a bit irresponsible. And <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, Whatever. Uh, and so in the early days, for instance, I had this idea that um, what we should, because you know, we're fundamentally like a language learning site, um, and I had this idea that we should all get on a bus, like a converted double-decker bus, and just go around Europe you know, a lot of coders, designers, you know, the whole team, and just go on a fucking road trip around Europe. <laughs> and, and it would just be incredible. It would just be the best idea ever, sort of thing. Um, and, you know, we'd have learned so much about language, and it would have been an incredibly fun, diverse, interesting experience. Um, and it would have been a wonderful way of getting PR and the rest of it. But on the other hand, and this is where rationality came in. Know, what the hell are you doing? You're supposed to be doing a startup. You're in a bus. You're driving around Europe. Um, where are you going to sleep? Um, exactly what function does this have for the product? You know, and so a million other things come in, and you're like, well, and so that was that was an example of where intuition was thwarted by a kind of banal kind of self recriminating rationality, resulting in um, I'm almost certain like a less interesting product and less fun.
1: Now, look, okay, <laughs> um, you bring up a really interesting uh you bring up a really interesting set of questions, and this is this is something that uh at, at times I do better with at times I do more poorly with but i've tried to at various points in my life uh, make increase the speed with which I make decisions so if a de- if a decision is reversible and uh non fatal <laughs> then uh, I yeah. find my life is generally much better when I just do exactly what you mentioned, which is like left, right, who gives a fuck? I'm going right, it'll be fine. And if it's not, I'll figure it out later. And making these types of reversible decisions as quickly as possible so that you don't have a lot of cognitive burden and you're not sort of stuck up your own ass all the time. Um, but in the case of the bus yeah, yeah, yeah. and the business, let's just say, or uh, h- how do you balance the in- the intuition, which at some at, at, at times can be an irrational exuberance, with yeah, the yeah. sort of <laughs> pre- prefrontal cortex calculation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the question. That, that, that is that is the question. Uh,